Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 10 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. Um, I said, I'm Eric Lindrum. Oh. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jacob's not here today, guys. No, no, our beloved co-host is taking some well-deserved time off. He is actually down visiting family in Sweet Home, Alabama right about now and maybe doing some other things that he will most likely be talking about in next week's episode, episode 11. But for this week, we decided that rather than skip a week of content, we the show must go on one way or another. And I'm the only one here right now, so you guys just have me for the next hour. Now, please, I, I, I promise this will still be a good show to the best of my ability. So don't turn it off. Don't close that window. This is still going to be an interesting episode, I think. I mean, I, I like to think it will be interesting for reasons you will soon find out. And I thought to myself, okay, CPAC just happened. Surely, obviously, that's top of the news right now. But I really don't feel that we can do justice talking about CPAC with just myself. And again, not with Jacob here. So I, I thought to myself, and when Jacob told me he was going to be gone for this episode, I thought to myself, okay, what can I possibly do? How can I possibly carry this particular episode just by myself for an hour or however long it ends up being. But I figured, I thought to myself, what's the main thing we talk about here at The Right Take? Obviously, we talk about The Right Take, you know, the right-wing take, the proper American conservative approach, the actual authentically right-wing approach to the problems of the day. And I figured that this ultimately includes a key element of this is how does one decide that they are on the right? How does one ultimately determine that they are, in fact, a right-winger, uh, a conservative, uh, whatever you want to call yourself? What makes us come to this point? How does one get here? How does one get from point A to point B? How does one take the red pill? So I figured, all right, why not go ahead and give that concept a trial run for the first time really here on the right take with none other than myself. This is Eric Lendrum's Excellent Red Pill Adventure. So I'm just going to talk about how exactly my political philosophies developed, how they fluctuated quite dramatically over the years, especially starting really in my teenage years and working, of course, through college. College was a very transformative time. I had the privilege of going to college at the height of the 2016 election, which was such a great time to be alive, let's be honest. So where to begin? Of course, the earliest of my political beliefs were very much cultivated by where I grew up. I grew up in a very humble, small farm town in Central California, raised by conservative parents and a Christian family. We went to church every single Sunday, same church, same hometown church, every single Sunday for my entire life. And I, of course, didn't know much about politics growing up. I, I remember as a kid, I knew the name Clinton a lot because I was the president under whom I was born. So I heard the name Bill Clinton thrown around as a lot of jokes. Obviously, I would not know until many years later what those jokes were about. But I remember 2008 was it was an election a lot of us became familiar with even at a young age, because obviously you've got, you know, the first black president, Obama. And as that election was going on, I remember asking my parents, you know, because all the media inevitably kind of escaped through me, little newspaper clippings that managed to get through down to me, even though I was in I was in like middle school at the time, I think didn't care much for electoral politics at the time. And I asked, you know, about, oh, what's this with this guy, Obama, you know, this this black guy who could become the first black president. And I asked my parents, oh, what do we think about this guy? What do we think? I remember my parents telling me that the most they told me was that they 
didn't know much about Obama one way or the other, but I'm not sure if that's actually how they felt or if they were just telling that to me because I was just a kid. But uh, I remember them mentioning that they supported a fellow running for president at the time by the name of Mike Huckabee. And I remember looking into that name just a little bit more. And as a kid, I, I found out, I remember finding this out and thinking, how can this guy lose? How can this guy possibly lose? Surely he should win. Because Chuck Norris endorsed him. <laughs> I remember seeing Chuck Norris endorse this guy. And of course, I grew up with all the Chuck Norris memes, memes before they were memes as they were. Now Chuck Norris can literally, he doesn't swim, he pushes water away from himself, all that fun stuff. And unfortunately, of course, the man endorsed by Chuck Norris didn't win that election. And we got Obama. So then, oh, okay, cool. Yay, first black president. Even as a kid, we kind of knew that was a big deal. So then I kind of put politics away, put them on the, on the shelf, if you will, for another few uh, few more years through the rest of middle school and then into high school. And I remember, of course, I was uh, familiar with Obamacare when that became a thing, that the government is forcing us to buy health insurance. And again, I was just a teenager. I was quite a few years away from having to deal with the consequences of that, but even I knew that that was pretty bad. But my political awakening didn't come until a few years later. And that ultimately was the year 2012, which was my junior year, back end of junior year, first half of senior year of high school. And of course, that, there was an election going on that year. But I wasn't even that invested. I mean, I did follow the election, of course, the, the Republican primaries and whatnot, just as a matter of principle, party politics, if you will. But in that same year that I first became politically active, I would go on to volunteer for um, a local politician at the time. I regretfully inform you all that this individual for whom I volunteered as a high school student was a fellow by the name of David Valadeo, who solidified himself in infamy as one of the 10 Republicans who just voted to impeach President Trump for a second time in the House of Representatives. But I, I worked for that campaign. I volunteered for that campaign as a high school student. I remember actually being so invested that I called in sick on election day from school so that I could spend literally the entire day doing phone banking. All I did was phone banking. I didn't do door knocking or any of that stuff, but I did that in 2012. But earlier in the year, of course, there was another thing that initially seemed non-political in that it wasn't related to electoral politics. But it spread like wildfire in terms of the discussion going on in my high school among my fellow students. And that was an incident concerning two guys whose names you definitely remember by the name of George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. Yeah, the incident that is now widely seen as the birth of Black Lives Matter was also a, a big moment for me. It was really a watershed moment for me because I remember when that story first – because, of course, I would seen a handful of you know snippets of like, oh, infamous trials that went on. Uh, in my lifetime, I remember, you know, the Casey Anthony trial. I actually remember watching that verdict live with my mom on TV. So, of course, I was familiar with big trials, but this was one that very quickly right away I knew, I noticed even before things really got going with the trial itself, just the framing of that whole situation in the media and how it was relayed by my fellow students. I remember the, the discussions, of course, like, oh, this is a, it was a white man who killed a black boy. And that was what I had heard for the longest time. And OK, last name Zimmerman. OK. Then I remember the first time I saw a picture of Zimmerman, and it was probably the one a lot of you guys remember seeing for the first time, which was an older mugshot of him where he had more weight on. He was wearing like an orange jumpsuit or something. I remember taking one look at that picture, and I was thinking, you know, I've lived around enough Latinos in my neighborhood. It, it was a very, uh, obviously, Central California farming town. Lots of Portuguese in particular, but yes, lots of Latinos that I grew up with and friends in high school and church and whatnot. I took one look at that picture and said, I know enough to know that that right there is no white guy. Why is the media saying this guy is white? And of course, infamously, they continued calling him white, calling him a white Hispanic, white Hispanic. Okay, he's a white Hispanic. I'm like, the heck? What's going on here? 
Then it continued escalating further and further into portraying Trayvon Martin as a as, as a victim. And I remember that some of my classmates, one of my class, we were discussing, okay, was Zimmerman a racist? Did he kill this kid because he was black? And one of my classmates, when I questioned that, got very aggressive with me, another white guy. And he said, of course, George Zimmerman is a racist. He ran up and shot Trayvon in the back of the head. And I'm like, wait, what? Shot him in the back of the head? Okay, I didn't know that. Let me let me look into that. And then, of course, the eventually the facts of the case were coming out. The autopsy report that Trayvon Martin had been shot in the chest from the front. But this kid believed that. He so passionately said, yeah, everyone knows that Trayvon Martin was murdered because he was black. And this guy was clearly a racist because the media said so. The media said he got shot in the back of the head, even though that wasn't true. And I remember arguing with them further when I said, okay, uh, eyewitnesses. There were a handful. Remember, there were a couple of witnesses who were inside their homes watching through their windows because the fight ended up being on the sidewalk in front of their homes. And there was one woman who chose to remain anonymous and reported, oh, yeah, I saw the incident where the uh, the gentleman in an or- – it was dark out, but the guy in the orange, bright orange jacket was on the ground on his back, and the figure in the black jacket was on top of him and beating him. And I remember saying, okay, well, that night, George Zimmerman was the one wearing the orange jacket and Trayvon was wearing the black jacket. And I said that to my classmates. I said, hey, eyewitnesses, because there were no video cameras or anything, an eyewitness said what they saw was Trayvon on top beating George Zimmerman into the ground, which also lines up with Zimmerman's story that he pulled out the gun and shot Trayvon in the chest from the front, which is what the autopsy report said. And the classmates were so bewildered. They said to me, oh, really? If, If an eyewitness said that and saw that, why doesn't she come forward and give her name and testify? And I'm like, don't you think maybe she's afraid of all the media coverage that's surrounding this? And they just laughed it off and like a real witness would come forward. And they, they just doubted everything I said, even though I was citing facts. And I'll never forget one other incident that tied into this was separately from interacting with my classmates was I remember watching on Fox News. I'll never forget watching on Fox News. It was shortly after the incident happened and really went viral and went national. Fox, I forget which host it was. It definitely wasn't one of the Hannity types. It was one of the more early afternoon hosts. They had Trayvon's mother on with his stepfather and their lawyer, a fellow at the time named Benjamin Crump, who, of course, will go on to infamy. He basically becomes the lawyer for any Black Lives Matter claimed a victim of racism or police brutality or whatever. I remember watching the interview live and Mrs. Martin asked about when asked about, um, oh, do you think that this was racist? Do you think that your son was murdered by this man? She just starts off very you know, naturally in a very soft, passive voice saying, you know, I, something paraphrasing here, something along the lines of, I, I think there was probably it was just a horrible misunderstanding. I, I just really want the facts to come out. But I, I I'm not sure if I'm ready to say that, you know, I blame Mr. Zimmerman. I am willing to forgive him. And I remember watching as that was happening. As she, she's sitting in the middle. Her husband, the stepfather is on the right. Crump is on the left and they're sitting in chairs with armrests. And I'll never forget seeing as she starts getting to that punchline of like, I'm sure it was a misunderstanding. I'm willing to forgive Zimmerman. You can see Crump, the lawyer, turn his head is kind of turned halfway between the camera and her. He's just kind of looking down and halfway between them. As she gets to the point of saying, like, I'm willing to forgive him, you could see him suddenly clench his fists really hard on the armrest, like freaking out in a very brief but subtle moment, like clearly suddenly tensing up. And then he reaches a hand over towards her, her his right hand towards her, as if to like grab her knee, then stops and puts it back on the armrest, just like a what are you doing? Then he puts his hand back because he knows he's on national live TV and can't do anything like that. I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, what's going on there? Then sure enough, the very next day, 
the mother released a statement suddenly recanting everything she said in that Fox interview saying, oh, no, no, I do believe this was racism and Zimmerman is a racist who murdered my son and he needs to pay. And I just remember looking at that and thinking from that clip from the lawyer and thinking, okay, I see what's happening here. Clearly between the media and the white Hispanic thing and the lawyer's actions and all this, it's it was clear to me certain forces in the media are working to paint a narrative that goes against the facts and is clearly trying to stoke racial tensions. And I saw it working among my classmates. And I just remember thinking, okay, this is, this is really strange. What's going on here? I just knew that this was not right. This was not something that should be allowed. And yet so many people were believing it. And the media seemed complicit in it. And certainly, of course, the Democrats, you know, the incumbent president at the time, Obama, were supporting it. Obama infamously said, oh, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. So I'm, I just see this and I'm like, OK, this is definitely not OK. I cannot support a side, a party, a, a faction, if you will, of American politics that is going to continue pushing this. And that definitely got me asking a lot of questions. And it certainly fueled my devotion to the right, as it were. And I guess you could say I tried to channel that into my campaign work, even though, of course, you look back on that year between me volunteering for Valadeo and, of course, having to vote for the man who was the presidential nominee at the time, Mitt Romney, another pro-impeachment Republican. So a, a bad year to get started in Republican politics, sure, on top of the fact, of course, it was a loss. I remember going in on election night thinking, oh, yeah, this that first debate, Romney destroyed Obama. This is going to be 1980 all over again. We're going to have our next generation, Ronald Reagan, defeat the new Jimmy Carter. And, of course, instead of... 1980, we got our own equivalent of 2004, where the weak and unpopular incumbent president somehow manages to win against a challenger whom we then quickly realized wasn't that great. So that definitely was a setback for quite a few more years. And I ultimately, of course, was able to move on from it and just focus on high school for the remaining uh, the remainder of my senior year. And then, of course, we move on to the next stage of education, which is college. So I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, which was definitely a great hotspot for the campus right in those years. Because, of course, in a few more years, we would have the next presidential election, 2016, where, of course, we went in thinking, oh, OK, Hillary is going to be the Democratic nominee. Who's going to be the Republican? And, of course, I joined being being political at that point, thoroughly political, irrespective of the election. I did join the college Republicans. And I remember at the time, of course, joining freshman year, and they boasted of their latest accomplishments, which, as you know, for most conservative student groups, quote-unquote, their big thing is to just, oh, let's bring famous people to campus to speak for two hours. And they talked about how, oh, in recent years, we've been very successful in bringing the likes of Ben Shapiro and Jonah Goldberg to campus. <laughs> and oh, how dated that would become in, in the near future. I also, around the time of my senior year of high school, freshman year of college, was very much involved with a group called Young America's Foundation and their student outreach branch, Young Americans for Freedom, which will also become relevant later in the story. So with the college Republicans, we worked to bring, I think our freshman year, they tried to bring Dinesh D'Souza to campus. And that, of course, ended up being delayed because that was right around the time that uh, some prosecutors in New York decided they really had it out for him and had to throw him in jail. So he ended up not being able to speak to us until a year later. In the meantime, I got more involved with YAF and went to their conferences because in Santa Barbara, they have one of their two national headquarters, their Ronald Reagan Ranch Center, where they would have conferences all the time and have speakers again with the likes of Ben Shapiro and National Review alumni and all that fun stuff. So again, very dated. But at the time, it, it all seemed so cool, right? You know, oh, Ben Shapiro, all these people. And I remember I got, I got elected to the board of the college Republicans in my junior year. 
and there was a big debate around whether or not to bring a certain someone to campus who was becoming a very big figure at this time. And this is this is 2015, like going into 2016. A fellow, a British fellow, a a gay Catholic Trump supporting Brit by the name of Milo Yiannopoulos. And ultimately, the college Republicans decided not to bring him. They thought he was too controversial, you know, his talks on feminism and whatnot. So ultimately, a lot of other students at the campus decided to, they really wanted to bring him. He, he was really popular. So they went out of their way to form their own Young Americans for Liberty chapter, not YAF, Young Americans for Liberty, which is the even cringier, if you can believe that, the other Young Americans group that is, uh, it's a libertarian group formed out of the ashes of Ron Paul's 2008 campaign. But they formed it specifically with Yale just to have that name recognition, that connection to that national infrastructure and funding that would make it so much easier for them to bring a Milo to campus. At the time, he was asking for a very, he was, I think his asking price then was like $1,000, which is chump change compared to what some of these speakers go for with Yaf and whatnot that literally ask for like five digit numbers. It's absurd. But they formed that chapter purely for the purpose of bringing Milo in May of 2016 for the first speech he would ever give that would have the formal title of Feminism is Cancer. It was part of his his glorious tour that he was on the time at the time of college campuses <laughs> called the Dangerous Faggot Tour. And it was fantastic. It was it was glorious. I remember actually he had uh, jokingly suggested to the board of the Yao Club, that many of whom were my friends, that they give him a grand ultra extravagant entrance and carry him in on a throne. He was joking, of course. It was one of the rare instances of where his exaggeration was a joke. But those absolute mad lads at the Yao board took it seriously. They actually went to Home Depot and bought all the supplies, the wood and whatnot, and built a giant wooden throne that they spray painted gold. And then six of their members carried him into the event on that throne, playing uh, the song from Team America World Police. It was absolutely fantastic. It, it's still on YouTube, I think, to this day. If you check the Breitbart channel or somewhere, you can find it. It was it was wonderful. And I got to help out a little bit. I wasn't on the board of Yao, but I helped with, uh, you know, security letting people in and whatnot and i actually did get to sit in the front row literally front and center i was in the front row center in front of the stage for that event with my friends literally to my left periscoping the event with his uh selfie stick was baked alaska <laughs> back when he was a member of milo's original entourage his original trio of himself milo and a pizza party ben obviously before baked alaska went absolutely bonkers it just became a total Holocaust denying neo-Nazi nut job who in his spare time would eventually make terrible rap music videos and storm the US Capitol. Um, but that's literally, that's where I was. I was kind of in the midst of this scene, which at the time we all understood it going 2015, 2016, we all called ourselves alt-right because at the time the alt-right was still this Milo, Steve Bannon, this Breitbart, just pro-Trump movement. It was not, you know, these autistic losers like Richard Spencer, Sig Heiling right after the election. It was just the term we used for young, especially young, very enthusiastic Trump supporters who were populists and obviously kind of defied the conservative establishment order, you know, neoconservatism in the Bush era and whatnot. And that's what we were. And that's the scene I was involved in at that time, obviously before the alt-right would be hijacked. And I remember that being a big deal for me. So obviously, this segues into the election itself. Now, I'm actually, I actually was familiar with Trump. I had actually grown up watching his show, The Apprentice, in, in my early teen years, uh, starting with the, what the show's fourth season, 
watching it like as it was airing and then I watched every single season after that including Celebrity Apprentice although I did not catch the final Celebrity Apprentice season before he ran for president but I did see all the others I did see the all-star season which was really great TV it really you look back on it it really is quality entertainment it's easily on par with the good old days of Survivor before Survivor became the bloated mess that it is now and I of course was a fan of him I liked him I always liked his show I liked his personality I remember him teasing a run for president in 2012, and I really hoped he would do it. Of course, he didn't do it. So then he ran in 2016. He announced in 2015. And of course, on day one, yeah, I did not think he would win, especially, again, living in a mostly Hispanic community in Central California. I was surrounded by the talk of, oh, did you hear what he said about Mexicans? He can't possibly win. So, of course, I went along with it. Okay, yeah, 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 whatever. My top choice is it was a tie between Rand Paul and Ben Carson for context, which I think allowed for a very smooth segue into supporting Trump in that I saw him as kind of a mix. He had the outsider appeal and political incorrectness of Ben Carson with the anti-interventionist stances of Rand Paul, which were two very big things for me because I I became anti-war pretty early on, actually, even in high school. I was against the war. I mean, I was all for killing terrorists and killing bin Laden and all that stuff, but I was sick of the war going on as long as it was. I just knew, I, I knew as a kid, a war going on this long is not normal and not okay. So I eventually supported Trump by earlier mid-November of 2015, when he was still polling as the frontrunner for the nomination, even after like the McCain controversy and other things he had said and done, and I saw the poll numbers, I'm like, okay, he's not going anywhere, and this is a big field. He's going to be the nominee. So by that point, I was all in. I'm like, let's go, baby, MAGA all the way. Trump's going to win this thing. And that, of course, clashed very heavily with figures in the college Republicans, and also certainly figures in YAF, who I, I've written a couple of articles about this. I, I talked about this a bit in one of our previous episodes. I talked about Young America's Foundation and how some chapters have broken away from it because, and it needs to be said, I said this in two of my articles. They are very much Ronald Reagan fan clubs. And I know this because I worked at YAF. I, of course, went to many of their conferences, and then I started working for them as a paid intern at the Reagan Ranch Center starting about halfway through my junior year. And then through the entirety of my senior year, I was very much involved. I, I worked there. I, I led tours. I worked the front desk. I helped with speaking events. I helped with student activism, you know, arrangement stuff and stuff like that. I got to meet so many speakers. I worked with donors. I became a fixture there. I remember some people even said to me at one point, Eric, you know, you've been here as a paid intern longer than some people have been here as full-time staff members. And I, and it was cool. It was a cool experience. But I remember going into the 2016 election and there were many of my higher-ups in Yaf, who did not, they never supported Milo, certainly, and they didn't support Trump. They were just, they were just either kind of indifferent or even outright hostile. I remember one in particular even said that they were, they, even after the election, said that they had voted for Evan McMuffin, you know, the CIA plant who ran as a uh, independent candidate and mostly just to win electoral votes of Utah, as if that was going to do anything, but that didn't even work out. But I remember one person, even one of my fellow Yaffers, did come to me privately and said. Yo, hey, dude, I see that you are very, very pro-Trump, and dude, secretly, I am with you on that one, but if I were you, I'd keep your support for Trump quiet around here. And I was just like, why? And he was like, don't you don't you see it? They don't like him. They'd rather, they don't think he's right for us. They, they'd rather just see him go away, and we can try again in four more years. I'm like, okay. I get very much adjacent to, at the time, the National Review Daily Wire crowd. Because this was, and of course, this was also in the midst. That was another thing with Ben Shapiro breaking away from Breitbart. Most people forget that by now that he worked at Breitbart. He and Milo, I remember, this is how old I am. 
I remember back when Ben and Milo were friends and they were both, they were frenemies, if you will. They were on Twitter. They would roast each other. They would, they would poke fun and make jokes and pretty politically incorrect jokes. But you could tell that they were getting along, that it was kind of a fun dynamic they had. But at a certain point, I think what it was is Milo was skyrocketing to the top. He was everywhere. He was generating headlines. And Ben was still kind of like a C-lister. And he saw Milo as kind of taking, as leading Breitbart, as being the leader of the new direction of Breitbart, whereas Ben wanted to be the leader of the direction of Breitbart. So then when he couldn't get his way, he rage quit and he formed the Daily Wire. And the Daily Wire became a major fixture with Yaff and ideologically very much adjacent to that Never Trump National Review crowd. I'll never forget one article I saw that just blew my mind. Back in 2015, a Daily Wire article by the uh, author by the name of Hank Berrien, who just went nuts after then-candidate Trump said on the campaign trail something along the lines of, the GOP must become the party of the American worker. And Berrien wrote this article at Daily Wire just freaking out, literally starting it off with this, with, with this statement, Donald Trump ripped off his face mask and revealed that he's really just Bernie Sanders underneath. He's just a socialist. And I remember looking at that and thinking, really? So being pro-worker means you're a socialist now? Are you kidding me? And don't worry, this will come into play later when I get to the point of all this to explain my overall opinions on the right and where I stand now. But that was very much, that was very important to me because especially when Trump won. I was working at YAF that day. I didn't have classes that day. So I spent all day working. I was actually working the front desk, which was an easier job than most because there weren't a lot of visitors. So I was allowed to just browse the internet. And I was watching like the earliest polls and the earliest returns. And I remember three things that happened that day that had me thinking that things might go our way after all. Because I was skeptical that Trump would win. I was all in for him, but I just didn't think he was going to win. Three things that happened that day over the course of the day. The first was a poll asking voters about the top five issues they most cared about in the 2016 election. And I remember one of them, I think it was either number two or number three in terms of the ranked priorities of voters was changing the political, changing the status quo. And for those voters who chose that as their top issue, 86% of them went for Trump and 14% went for Hillary Clinton. And that brought me to a flashback to something I had heard Rush Limbaugh say, rest in peace, on election night 2012, when he said he saw early exit poll that one of the top priorities for voters was, do you think the presidential candidates care more about people like you? And in that poll, like 88% said Obama and only 12% said Romney. And he saw that and said on election day, he said, if this is true, then Romney lost and this is already over. And I remember thinking the same thing when I saw that poll, that massive landslide poll of voters who want to change things voting for Trump 86%. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty big deal. Second were the last two polls, national polls of the election cycle one of which was the Investor's Business Daily TIPP poll and then the USC LA Times poll. And they both had Trump winning. I think the IBD poll had him up by two or three and the LA Times poll had him up by five. And these polls were noted for their accuracy. And then third and lastly, a coworker who had family and friends in Pennsylvania actually came to me and said, and because Pennsylvania, again, is three hours ahead of us because we're in California. And he said to me, he's like, yeah, my, my family, they're all getting, going out to vote today in person. And they live in like rural Pennsylvania, like somewhere central in the state, I think. And he said, they are telling me, my dad is telling me right now, he has never in his life seen lines to vote this long in his area before. And his friends from other areas, other rural areas say it's the same all across the state in the rural areas. Just massive turnout in the rural areas of Pennsylvania. And I took note of that. I'm like, okay. 
And then, of course, I'll never forget. I was celebrating uh, that night. We were having our big election watch party uh, first in my apartment, actually. And then we mobilized to the apartment of our then president of the College Republicans and mostly CR members and Yale members. And we were all we had our phones out, some of our phones and our computers and tablets, all watching the election results and the TV. We were switching between NBC and the Young Turks coverage. And that proved to be a great decision because the Young Turks freaking out over election night was glorious. And I remember watching the results come in. And when Fox called Wisconsin for Trump, I remember thinking, okay, that was really early. That was premature. As we know, even from this last election, Fox loves calling things early. But I remember saying, if that is true and Fox just called Wisconsin for Trump, then I think he might win this. And then I remember seeing further updating my friends with Pennsylvania that when they said about 97% in in Pennsylvania and Trump was leading by 70,000, I saw that and I was like, okay, I think he's going to win Pennsylvania. And if he wins Pennsylvania, it's over. And then of course it was three in the morning, Eastern time, midnight, our time. I remember watching his victory speech as he came down the stairs with his whole family and they were playing the great music from the movie Air Force One with Harrison Ford, the music by Jerry Goldsmith, that triumphant theme. I just remember I just remember seeing his reaction as he crossed the stage. He, he, there's a moment where if you watch any of the videos of that, he's walking across the stage, you know, clapping with everyone else. You can see a moment in his eyes where you can see, oh, he looks like he's either about to cry or has been crying earlier, like tears of happiness. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is happening. And then he gives his speech. And it was truly something spectacular. <laughs> I remember I, I was so invested in Trump that I actually got I think at least eight different Trump campaign pins, some featuring Trump and Pence, most of them just featuring Trump's face and MAGA and Trump and his name and all that. And I wore them all on my backpack so that whenever I walked around campus, everyone would see I have a million Trump pins. And yeah, I had a little bit of an idea that this could be a little dangerous. We did see some of the protests like Black Lives Matter and other protests on campus. But my working theory had always been that if I had an absurd amount of it, like if, if you wear just a MAGA hat, yeah, people are just going to get angry at you. But I wore a MAGA hat with eight pins, you know, front and back, covered in Trump stuff. My working theory was that if I went so overboard with it, most people would look at me, even the people who would be mad at me, they would look and just be kind of more impressed and be like, oh, he has that many pins. He's that dedicated. They, if anything, they would laugh it off because like, oh, look at him with all his million Trump pins and Trump's going to lose. But then, of course, Trump won. And the next day, I remember going to class. My morning class had been canceled for on for previous reasons. It was already announced before the election results. It had nothing to do with the election. It was canceled. So I went into my next class, which was later in the morning. And the morning of, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to wear the MAGA hat. I'm going to take all the pins off my backpack. Because by that point, everybody knew me and recognized me regardless of the pins. But I walked into class with the backpack with no pins and no MAGA hat. I just strolled right up to my seat on the aisles, kind of kind of central so that a lot of people could see me. I just remember looking around and seeing a lot of downcast faces and hanging heads. And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> and my professor, this was a literature class, I believe, because I minored in English. The professor, a woman, obviously a feminist, uh, went to the front of the class and started off and said something along the lines of, okay, and before we start for today's lecture, I just wanted to let you all know that the UCSB has uh, counseling and psychological services available to all of you in case any of you feel like it may be the end of the world. And she, she said it in a way that like even the, her inflection was kind of weird, almost like the way she spoke it, you would think maybe she was making fun of it. But the look in her face, she, the way she was kind of shaking her head, I'm like, she is devastated by this. And I'm just like, <laughs> all right. So that happens. So Trump wins, right? And Trump's victory really did open my eyes with regards to Certainly not just how vicious the media was and the Democrats were, but how fraudulent the Republican Party is. That the Republican Party and many figures in the grassroots, if you will, you know, the campus speakers, the, the Daily Wire, National Review, Ben Shapiro, Yaff, 
College Republicans, even some members of our own, again, especially in California, lots of college Republicans in the state did not support Trump. In fact, the national chairwoman of the College Republicans, national college Republicans at the time, a woman by the name of Alex Smith, who had been the first woman to be elected chairperson of the CRNC, College Republican National Committee, she was among the many voices who came out and disavowed Trump right after the Hollywood Access tape came out and called on him to step down and let Pence be the nominee or something. And they never retracted that statement after he won. No statement of congratulations whatsoever. Nothing. And I felt very, I felt the same kind of response among even my colleagues in CRs and in YEF, and even a few even back home in my local Republican Party who just were never crazy about Trump or his ideology. They were not crazy about Trump. They didn't support Steve Bannon. They didn't support any of the people who brought that MAGA national populist message to the forefront of American politics. And I remember thinking to myself, in contrast with what I had seen from the left, how could you guys possibly, possibly think it's okay to virtue signal and oppose Trump just because he says mean things when you see what the left is trying to do? I actually did witness this. This tied back into what I had seen in high school with the Trayvon Martin incident. There was a big incident that I was involved in in college with Young America's Foundation. In, it was actually early 2016. In February 2016, so a couple months before Milo would speak at our campus, Ben Shapiro was going to give a speech at Cal State University, Los Angeles. And the speech was titled, uh, to his credit, this was a really edgy title, When Diversity Becomes a Problem, which is a valid point to make, honestly. And again, coming from someone like Ben Shapiro especially, you know that a lot of people were probably thinking that. It was obviously addressing the Black Lives Matter multiculturalism nonsense. And I was invited to go. I brought a bunch of my friends from College Republicans and YAF at my campus to go as well. And... We get there and we get to the um, the pavilion lobby leading into the auditorium where he's supposed to speak. I remember meeting up with my friends. We had our signs like, yeah, Ben Shapiro, yeah, yeah, all this fun stuff, making fun of safe spaces. And as we get closer to that building, we can hear kind of a distant chanting. And we're like, what's what's going on? What is that? We get inside the lobby and there is this mob, this this horde of Black Lives Matter activists, mostly members of the school's Black Student Union, but a bunch of you know leftist students had literally formed a human chain and were barricading the door to the to where the speech was supposed to be. And they were all chanting, you know, like, oh, racist, Nazi, rah, 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 stuff like that. And I remember my friends and I were like, okay, let's try to get closer. Let's see how close we can get and see what this is like. And against my better judgment, I went ahead with him and we got pretty close to the door. And we saw anybody who dared try to enter through those doors, which were unlocked, but being blocked, anyone who tried to enter through those doors would be attacked. Among them were a young girl and an older man who looked like he was probably in his 50s or something, you know, gray hair, an older man. When they got close, the students, including this one in particular who was their ringleader, this big black guy with this camouflage bandana on his head and sunglasses, you know, tight black shirt and everything. He, he was clearly their leader. They would shove these people. They would literally start shoving them to the ground, like the little girl and, and, the, and the old man. They would literally like scream in their face and then shove them to the ground and not let them in. And at one point, the, the guy, the leader of the students did get into a fight with the older gentleman, a guy, a guy who looks like he's probably 30 years older, an, an older uh, white guy. And as they are fighting, they're literally brawling on the ground in front of us. There's no campus cops anywhere to be seen. And as they're fighting on the ground, the leftist students all chanting, no violence, no violence, no violence. And I'm like, you're literally chanting, excuse me? What is what is happening here? I mean, this was one of my earliest visions of what clown world would eventually become. They're chanting no violence as they're beating up people who are trying to go see a speech. And I remember eventually kind of fighting my way out of the crowd 
and getting back outside where there was fresh air and space. And I got out just in time to see uh, the motorcade of multiple black like SUVs rolling up to a loading dock. And they they had driven Ben Shapiro back to, along with his bodyguards and others, to the loading dock entrance to lead him in first because there was like a service elevator that would take them to the auditorium through the back entrance. And they said, okay, yeah, we're going to get him first. And then we're going to start funneling you guys in about maybe 10 or 15 at a time through the back door here in the service elevator. So I was among that group of first people that went in. They were funneled into the back. And I think a couple more were shuffled in just before the the rioters found out that there was a secret entrance and they ran around and started blocking that door as well. Some of my friends were blocked out of that and we're inside the auditorium and Shapiro eventually shows up to give his speech and we all applaud like crazy and he starts talking and they pull the fire alarm. And I think the video is probably still on YouTube, the video, the full speech somewhere you can see it for yourself. And he's like, you know, and there it is, folks, you know, but we're not, they're not going to stop us. So he gives his speech. And talk, you know, like this is America now. You know, this is welcome to America right now in the year 2016. This is a, this is fascism. And I remember sitting in that auditorium. It was dark. The lighting was dark. You could hear kind of the chanting and the banging on the doors. At that point, the doors had been locked. You know, they were not letting anyone in through the main doors. And they eventually stopped the fire alarm. But I remember, and, and after it was done, he left through the service elevator. And then they said, "Okay, yeah, they want me to leave first. They, they I've been informed that they want me to leave first because if." As long as I'm still on campus, they cannot guarantee your safety. So then he left. And then eventually, once they found out he left, they just kind of dispersed. And we came out. And I remember feeling dazed. I'm like, what just happened here? What's going on? All this for a speech from Ben Shapiro, who, again, at the time, I still liked. I watched his podcast daily at this point. And that was a big deal for me. And the same people I was involved with, you know, Yaf, Ben Shapiro, certainly, and several college Republicans, who were there for that and saw that happening at the hands of the left at a very radicalized, obviously racist left-wing movement, they were indifferent to whether or not Trump could even win. You know, Ben Shapiro infamously said, you know, there's no difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, folks, okay? Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are basically the same person, so you're better off just not voting at the top of the ticket. And I remember thinking, hey, at least one of these two candidates says he is going to oppose what we saw on campus that day. He's going to push back against the left. He is not certainly not going to enable these people. And yet you're going to sit there and say, oh yeah, we shouldn't support him. Oh, he should step down because he said something controversial. Oh, we're not, I'm not going to vote for him. I'm going to vote for Evan McMuffin, you know? And that really opened my eyes. And I realized, yeah, you know what? I'm not as confident in the Republican party anymore. I still love Trump, but I'm realizing that the Republican party has a lot of issues that need to be worked out. And certainly, again, he came in opposing war, opposing immigration, supporting better trade deals. And to, for those things to get as much resistance as they did, again, forget the media, forget the left. Of course, they're going to oppose him no matter what. But for so many Republicans to stand against him, you know, Mitt Romney, again, the guy I voted for, the Bushes, I was just blown away. The party I had been taught basically for most of my at that time, adult life or early, you know, teenage developmental years, this is the party I should support. This is the good party that they basically almost try to sink their own nominee. And that really changed a lot for me. And especially, that certainly has not gotten any better in, in these last four years. I like to say, oh yeah, I'm not a Republican anymore, thanks to Donald Trump. But it's not the never Trump approach. They're like, oh, I, I hate the Republican Party because they embrace Trump and his Nazism. I support Trump and I will support him to the end. But the Republican Party is going to have to seriously work hard to earn back my support as an entity, as a whole, especially when, again, they didn't do anything to deal with voter fraud. Trump was the only one talking about voter fraud. They didn't do anything about big tech. They had two years with complete control of both houses of Congress and the presidency. 
And what did they do? They tried Obamacare repeal and that failed miserably. And they gave us some tax cuts. Ooh. They didn't take on big tech. They didn't give us the wall. They didn't give us anything. And again, that's not Trump's fault. I don't blame Trump at all for that. You can only work with so much. You can only do so much when your party won't work with you. But I remember looking at that and thinking, did the Democrats ever do this? Do the Democrats ever do this in virtue signal when their guy's in power? Of course not. They ran through Obamacare and Dodd-Frank and all these other things that they did. Amnesty. And that's another thing too, immigration. That Trump was big on immigration. And like I said, in my area, that was not very popular, but I came to see being in California, the effects immigration can have on a state and on the community. Uh, granted, I, I was very fortunate. I never really saw that kind of savagery with illegal aliens, with gang members, MS-13 rapists, you know, the stuff you see in San Francisco. I never saw any of that in my community. We're better than that, thankfully, at least for now. But I remember seeing it happening elsewhere in the state, Kate Steinle and so many others, and angel families, victims of illegal aliens. And the politicians turn around and say, oh, of course, let them in. Yeah, let them in. Of course, we're going to let them in. Why not? Why have a border? And that is why the state is blue. And the state is always going to be blue. I hate to say it, but it's true. If we're going to tie back just a little bit of what's going on currently, I will say this. Do not get your hopes up for the recall in California, guys. It's not happening. All right, Gavin Newsom who I swear looks like a Batman villain. He seriously looks like, he looks like Harvey Dent before Harvey Dent turns evil and becomes Two-Face. He, he is actually, we have a Batman villain as governor in California. He's not going to get recalled, folks. All right. It, it's fun to put your effort behind it and energy behind it. Give him a bit of a headache, sure. Make him work for this, but he is going to win again because in California, they vote so blindly for Democrats. And that's not because the good working class people in my area, in inland California, rural California, vote for him. It's because they bring in millions of illegals who will vote for Democrats no matter what because they're the party of amnesty. They could literally run Adolf Hitler as a Democratic nominee and Abraham Lincoln as a Republican nominee and Hitler would win at least 60% of the vote in California because that's just how the state works. And that's immigration for you. And Trump knew that. Were we talking about immigration in 2012? Were we? Of course not. Were we talking about bad trade deals? No. The only party that was talking about ending the wars was the Democrats. And again, if I hadn't been raised as a Republican, I would, and if I, if I cared even more about the war issue than I already did, I probably would have been willing to think, okay, yeah, like if Obama ran on ending, which he did, he ran on being anti-war. And I remember being very disappointed that he did not bring all the troops home within one year as he said he would. He said he'd bring home all the troops from Iraq and Afghanistan in one year and he didn't do it. So I was disappointed in him in that. And of course, they kept doing the same thing. And Hillary surely would have done the same thing. Trump ran on ending the war. And that was a big deal for me. And the fact that these were controversial for the Republican establishment blew my mind. It boggled me to no end. And I remember asking myself, thinking, okay, why are they like this? Why do they insist that immigration is okay? Why do they insist on free trade even when it screws us over? Again, you can find videos of President Trump back when he was just Donald Trump, the businessman, as far back as the 80s, where he's talking about China screwing us over on trade. And why are they so against ending the wars? We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. 20 years! I will always say this and point this out for perspective. There are some soldiers, members of the military, fighting in Afghanistan right now, deployed in Afghanistan, what have you, fighting in a war that has been going on since before they were born. And that's criminal. That is criminal right there. That should not be happening. And I think to myself, tying into that, okay, why are they like this? 
why is the Republican establishment like this? And this is why I have come to my, here's my final conclusion on where the right is right now, what has been plaguing it for so long, and what needs to be done to fix it. I think most of the right's problems, the Republican Party, conservatives, whatever you want to call them, most of their problems stem from the fact that they are stuck in a Cold War era mentality. And I saw this, again, going back to my experience with Yaf, I saw this with Yaf. They endlessly talk about how great Ronald Reagan was, and of course, what's the greatest thing he did? The greatest thing he did, he won the Cold War. He, Of course, the Soviet Union wouldn't collapse until under his successor, his vice president, George H.W. Bush. But Reagan, we can all agree, he pretty decisively took the final steps to end the Cold War after 50 years, half a century of the specter of global communism hanging over our heads. Whether it was Korea, Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was the big enemy for half a century after World War II. And sure, that's a long time for the country to live under that mentality. Our very culture was shaped by it. You know, you look back at all the, the great movies from the 80s where the Russians are the bad guys, Hunt for Red October, or the great Tom Clancy novels, Red Dawn, Rocky IV, you know? it's It was like that for so long. But then the Soviet Union collapsed, and for but 10 years, we didn't have any enemy. We had no enemy. We were, for one decade as what people like to say, the 90s was a break from history. We were the unchallenged world hegemon. Then, of course, 9-11 happens. And we deal with Islamic terrorism. And that, of course, it, it was a big threat, and it was had to be handled, and it has been handled, I think. it's Certainly, it's, it's on the decline. Still a big threat, but it's on the decline from what it was 20 years ago. But they never really moved on from some of the same ideas, some of the tactics and theories they had, the working theories they had. Again, on the right, I'm talking about the right specifically. For example, in the 50s, in the 50s and 60s, the conservative movement led by the neocon wing, primarily led by William Buckley, kicked out the paleoconservatives. These were the old, the classic, the old right Republicans who would kind of precede ideologically the Trump movement, you know, which was foreshadowed by the movement of Pat Buchanan and was led by guys like Russell Kirk. You know, they were strict on trade and immigration, more traditional values, you know, family values, religion, God. And they were kicked out of the movement by the neocons. And the neocons decided, oh, well, we just, we, our ranks have been reduced here. We got to make up those numbers. Um, Hey, you libertarians, you don't like communism, right? Libertarians say, yeah, of course we don't like communism. Neocons say, oh, great. We hate commies too. Join us. And thus fusionism was born. And to this day, again, up to the Trump movement, this idea, okay, no, 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 the libertarians are right. We need to be fiscally conservative and socially liberal. That's that's what people want, even though time and time again, every election proves this is not the case. That was born out of the Cold War. The idea of just unfettered capitalism, capitalism, again, we have talked about this on the podcast at length, the undying, unquestioning support for capitalism on the right to the point of, no, 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 you know, they love to tout Reagan's... Uh, quotes along the lines of, oh, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. The scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. And they went out of their way to demonize the government, especially with matters of the economy. And said, no, no, no. Government intervention is bad. It's bad because it's just like communism. Communism is government intervention. We have to be the opposite of those dirty commies. So we're as free market as possible. And no government intervention, you know, no regulations, no restrictions whatsoever. And this subsequently led to the rise of this massive, as Josh Hawley would say, this corporate oligarchy that we have now. The corporations like you know, the McDonald's and the Walmarts and, all, and Amazon and all these corporations, which, what do they do with their money in their spare time? They virtue signal to the left and to fundamentally anti-American causes. 
That's on top of the even bigger problem of monopolies, corporate monopolies like the big tech monopolies, Twitter, Facebook, all those. And when you, if you were to ask anybody, again, if this topic ever came up pre-Trump and you asked any Republican, they would say, oh, well, let's just get the government out of the way and let the economy, let the free market work it out. Ben Shapiro would say that again, his debate with Tucker Carlson in 2017, a great video. If you haven't seen it yet, you should watch it on Ben Shapiro's Sunday show. Again, I very rarely will recommend content from Ben Shapiro, but his Sunday show debate with Tucker Carlson highlights this perfectly. Ben Shapiro will just say, nah, just let the free market work it out, folks. The free market will work everything out. Never minding the irrefutable fact, the free market is how we got here with big tech and just completely unbridled capitalism. You can still love capitalism, of course, as a system in comparison to communism. Yes, of course, capitalism is better. But capitalism itself, I wrote an article about this reacting to the Shapiro-Tucker Carlson debate on American Greatness. Capitalism itself should not be the end goal. The economy is not the end goal for which we are fighting here. Our end goal is a good society, a good, whether it's our form of government, our culture, the society itself. The economy is part of that, but that is not the final goal. We should not worship capitalism blindly as some of these Paul Ryan types who tout Ayn Rand, but seem to have forgotten a guy named Teddy Roosevelt. They forget that trust busting and some government regulation is perfectly fine. It was perfectly fine in Roosevelt's day, and it's fine today. We have government regulation on the economy. We have workplace safety laws. We have laws against child labor. We have, in most places, we have a minimum wage. We have certain things that do qualify as restrictions on the economy. But when you ask, you know, these yaffers and these these conservatives, they don't really have an answer to that. They, uh, some of them, I'm not kidding, I even met some, who unironically said, oh yeah, we should repeal child labor laws. Free market, dog. And I'm like, okay, 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 buddy, I see how it is. But they are still so stuck in this Cold War mentality of just constant free market capitalism that they refuse to acknowledge there are problems with the system that led to the corporate oligarchy, that led to big tech monopolies, and has certainly led to other things. The the free market certainly has led to the student loan crisis. You know, this free market, again, this system, the culture we have, and not the culture, but an aspect of culture, encourages students, oh yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta go to college. You gotta go to college, don't you know? Get a four-year degree or else you'll spend the rest of your life flipping burgers as if there's no merit in the people who do do those so-called mundane jobs. Go to college, take out all the loans you need, get that degree. That's all that matters. So then they go to college and they get indoctrinated for four years in anti-American leftist values. And then they come out with a worthless degree in gender studies or racial woes or whatever. And they're tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt. And they see that as a kind of self-fulfilling, self-confirming prophecy. Again, we talked about this in an early episode of the show. So then they think, oh, well, gee, look, capitalism has left me kind of screwed over. and I'm getting the short end of the stick. Clearly, we do need socialism because then they not only see capitalism as betraying them with the student loan crisis, but they turn to the Republicans. And the Republicans say, oh, just let the free market work it out. OK, well, the free market is exactly how I got here. So how is that going to work? So eventually they're going to turn. They're going to turn to a Bernie Sanders or an AOC. And of course, yes, the, these are radical millennials coming out having been indoctrinated in college. But at a certain point, this will apply to other voters, to swing voters, working class voters. There is a reason why Bernie Sanders didn't just have support of crazy millennials. He had the support of working class voters because he was also appealing to the working class. And when you have someone like Bernie Sanders become popular, it is only a matter of time. It's only a natural progression that sooner or later someone like an AOC will rise. And beyond, yes, she's got her tiny little deep blue 75% blue district. But sooner or later, 
when you contrast someone like her with a Republican like Paul Ryan, who just keeps insisting, oh, free market, free market, just let the free market solve everything. Eventually, with things getting worse as they are, the free market, or the bubble that led to the housing crisis, the student loan crisis, big tech monopolies, corporate oligarchies, enough voters are going to eventually throw their hands up and say, all right, you Republicans, you free market worshipers, we gave you your chance and you have no answers for us to the problems we face. Let's give the socialists a try. And then you're going to get a president, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which do not laugh at that. I will say, I don't think she has as much influence or power as she thinks she does, but she has more than some of her detractors would like to admit. Never underestimate someone like that running for president, which she probably will. And that's really my, my final understanding of the fundamental problem with the Republican Party and the right and why Trump was necessary. He came along and said, okay, yeah, like, for example, he bucked conservative orthodoxy. Okay, yeah, on, on fiscal matters. I'm not going to touch your Social Security and Medicare. Uh, yeah, I'm going to leave that alone. Yeah, we got to end the wars. Uh, we got to take on these these companies. We got to deal with immigration. Again, that's another thing. Immigration supported by the Democrats because, of course, it gives them more voters, supported by the Republicans because it gives their corporate donors free, cheap labor that undercuts American workers, reduces wages, and the American workers are shafted because these illegals come pouring over the border and will work for 25 cents an hour. Exaggerated, of course, but you get the point. And... How is that good for America? Again, what is good for the economy is not always good for America. And this worship of the economy and constant, the same people, the same people who say free market, free market will just work itself out. All they do is just call the Democrats socialists. And yeah, at times, yeah, the Republicans are great with messaging. They are great with attacking the Democrats when they need to sometimes. And attacking socialists can work for a while. But here's the problem. And back to what I said with the example about Gen Z soldiers in Afghanistan. The rising generation of millennials and Gen Z, many millennials, including myself, were not alive for the Cold War. Some were, some of the oldest, on the oldest end of the millennial spectrum, were alive in like the final years of the Cold War, at best. But most millennials, like myself, and certainly the entirety of Gen Z, the Zoomers, were not alive for the Cold War. We remember it through pop culture from the 80s that we may have seen. And even then, we're moving on. Zoomers are not watching movies from the 80s. They're on TikTok. These young voters, when... The Republicans keep crying, socialism, socialism, socialism. It's not going to have an impact on them because they didn't grow up in communism. Global communism is not the threat anymore that it once was. You can talk about AOC and Bernie and the threats to our country from internal socialism compared to the Scandinavian countries or Europe, whatever. It's not going to mean anything to them. Just like kids today who were born after 9-11. I'll never forget how I felt. Again, with YAF, uh, one of the things they did was a 9-11 Never Forget event where we would, on the beach at Santa Barbara, we would put, we would literally put 3,000 flags in the ground, in the sand to commemorate the 3,000 victims. And I got to do that in the year 2015, which was the year that I remember reading an article on that. That was the first year that high school freshmen, usually at the age of 14, would be learning about 9-11 as a historical event that happened before they were born. I was seven years old when 9-11 happened. I faintly remember it. But I'm ready to accept, and I'll, I'll never forgive you know, Islamic terrorists for what they've done, and I will always see Islamic terrorism as one of the great evils, and I will always, I will always remember that. But I am prepared to accept it when the rising generation, Zoomers and whatever generations come after, I will be prepared for when those younger generations, up-and-coming generations, will not even blink when you mention 9-11. Why should they? 
it happened before they were born. Why? And certainly, again, after Islamic terrorism has mostly been dealt with adequately enough that it's not the threat that it was when we were growing up. Just as, you know, uh, baby boomers or Gen X didn't care as much if you mentioned Pearl Harbor. You know, again, it happened before they were born. Can you blame them? That's just the changing of the times. The right culturally and the Republican Party needs to adapt to the times. This is not the Cold War anymore. This arguably is not even the war on terror anymore. That's already kind of, we already have to kind of move on from that. We have to address new issues of the day internally, mostly internally, but also externally in the form of immigration. And you have to adapt. Ronald Reagan himself said this. He said that the Republican Party has to change. Even Buckley, to his credit, said that. Buckley said, you cannot keep harping on issues of the past. You have to, a movement has to adapt in order to survive, especially in politics. And Trump did more for that than anybody else. Trump was the first Republican to come along in 30 years and offer to change the Republican Party. And he did. And change it for the better. And he did. And until enough Republicans get behind him, and proudly declare that they support him and support what he did, this party will never be ready to take on the mass voter fraud and the mass immigration that is going to give Democrats an even bigger benefit in 2024. That's why 2022 is so important. We got to primary out every single rhino that voted to impeach Trump, and we have to secure this party not as a fiscally conservative anti-communism party of the Cold War. That this is now, this needs to be, as Trump said, this needs to be the party of the American worker, this needs to be the party of national populism, the party of America first. And that is why I am on the right now. That is my development up to this point. I don't see my general views changing anytime soon, culturally or politically, but that is why I have gotten to the point where I am now. And I'm sure a lot of other people probably have very similar stories or maybe drastically different stories, you know, like individuals who thought that they were on the left who have now become red-pilled, as it were. And we hope to appeal to all of those people, any of you, those of you who feel the same as I do, who are disgruntled with the Republican establishment, but maybe want to keep quiet about it. Because again, in social circles, I, I obviously lost a lot of friends voicing my support for Trump, even on the right, certainly forget the left, but on the right, even who didn't care to hang out with me anymore. They called me, oh, they called me unprincipled. Oh, you're unprincipled. Really? Unprincipled? The person who actually votes, wants to cast a vote in this crucial election because I care? Oh, I'm unprincipled? Okay. We here at The Right Take hope to reach anybody who feels similarly to how we do, irrespective of how you got there. And that's the message we hope to spread, that the Republican Party and the right is changing. Not just that it needs to change, but that it is changing. And together we will change it, and it will adapt, and it will finally shed this outdated, obsolete, antiquated approach for a conflict that most of us were not alive for anymore. That is what we are doing here at The Right Take. And we hope to get many more of you to join us on this journey as we continue into the coming weeks, coming months, and the coming years, into 2022 and 2024. Jacob will be back with us next week for episode number 11. Until next time, I'm Eric Lendrum, and this has been The Right Take.